Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you on this cool, cool morning. We have visitors from south, and they've come here for the warm weather. (laughs) How often have you heard the expressions, follow your dreams, be true to yourself, or I have to do what my heart is telling me? Those ideas have been around for quite a while, haven't they? But I think they've actually, in the last decade, been taken to another level around this theme of identity. So you can be whoever you want to be in terms of gender or race or nationality. You can self-identify however you wish, and society, of course, must respect your choice. And it's all about finding self-fulfillment, or what now so often is called flourishing. In a society that's rejected God and any reference point outside itself, you see it's now, it's the individual who determines what is good, what is considered to be of value. And so it's individual decision, choice and action, which is now prized over those old values, such as honour, duty, order. They're now, they're the values of a previous generation What Australia in the 21st century holds up as being the highest moral good is individual self-fulfillment and personal flourishing. Do you agree with me? (laughs) That's the way I read our society at the moment. So the question is, where do you go to find a model for understanding ourselves and our relationships and our identity? Well, guess what? The answer is God. (laughs) It's God. Sadly, though, that's the last place most Australians will think to look. For many people, they imagine any notion of God is the enemy of freedom and self-fulfillment. I guess if your image of God is the moral policeman in the sky, or the harsh parent who has strict house rules, or the narrow-minded preacher who's a killjoy, hope that's not me... (laughs) If that's your image of God, then of course you'll think he's the enemy of self-fulfillment. Fortunately for us as Christians, though, our understanding is Trinity. And it's an understanding which comes to us from the Bible. The Bible says God is love. That's simple, isn't it? But love involves relationship. And of course, that's much more complex. The Bible says God is Father. Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity involves three distinct persons who give practical expression to this simple truth, God is love. The Trinity is found on every page of the Bible, but never seen more clearly, I think, than in John chapters 13 to 17. It's the account of Jesus' dialogue with his disciples the night before he died, the Last Supper, before he was crucified. And here he gives his disciples a deep insight into the Trinitarian nature of God as a community of love. All three members of the Trinity have a deep desire to draw human beings into this community, into this love. The means for doing that will be what Jesus does the next day on the cross. And he'll do that out of obedience to the Father and in the strength of the Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united in love on this great mission together to save us. It's quite incredible. 
I would recommend that sometime you sit down and read John chapters 13 to 17 as a whole. Read it slowly and prayerfully. You'll gain a very full picture of the Trinity as this community of love. I want to quote Broughton Knox, who I think gives a very good little summary of Jesus' teaching about God here in John. And this is what he says. Thus, John's gospel reveals that the Father loves the Son. He gives all things to the Son. He shows him all that he does. The Son, in response, does always that which pleases the Father. His obedience springs from his love. I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me, he says. There is complete other person-centeredness in this relationship of the Father to the Son and of the Son to the Father. The Son does nothing of himself but speaks just what the Father has taught him. The same is true of the relationship of the Spirit to the Father and the Son. The Spirit is self-effacing. He does not speak from himself, but he takes the things of the Son and shows them to believers. He glorifies Christ. So ultimate reality is good, personal, relational. A couple of weeks ago, I read an article in The Australian by Kari Jenkins, who it was actually an extract from a book she's written recently. Her opening sentence is this. I choose to tell you here and now that I am in love with my husband as well as with my other partners. And I don't think there's anything wrong in my feeling that way. And she goes on to say, I chose to get married, taking on all the social benefits and privileges that come with that status. I also chose to be non-monogamous. And I choose now to talk openly about it. And she indicates in this article that her husband and other partners uh, know, of course, about this relationship. And they certainly would after the book was published. (laughs) So I'm sure she covered that base. But this is the route she is taking to find self-fulfillment, self-expression in order to flourish. Yet there are hints in what she says about the limits of how fulfilling this lifestyle really is. She talks about having to take joint ownership of the choices we make as a team and says, these aren't necessarily easy conversations to have with my conscience or with my partners. And then in brackets, although usually the former is worse, in other words, it's harder to have that conversation with her conscience. Interesting. She also downplays the happily ever after view of marriage and comes to the conclusion that love is essentially sad. I found the whole article rather sad, as you'd imagine. But my friends, we have the antidote to this contemporary malaise. God is love. God is Trinity. And if you want to understand love and relationship, you have to understand the Trinity. If you want to find fulfilment, then a pretty good place to start is the Trinity. Love is the answer. We all know that, don't we? But people are looking in all the wrong places. And the Trinity provides for us the perfect model of love, what it means to be in loving relationships, loving community. And, of course, it's about living for the other, 
seeking the glory of the other. And the really exciting and maybe surprising thing is that God's plan is to show the world this love through the church, through us, through his gathered body. In uh, John chapters 13 to 17, Jesus teaches his disciples about who the Trinity is so that they might be like that themselves and that they might be like that together as the church. When Jesus ascends and leaves them, he wants them to know that the Holy Spirit will continue to guide them and reveal God to them and grow them into this new community. Listen again to what we've just heard read from John 16, verse 14. He says, The Spirit will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So you see, all that the Father has belongs to Jesus, and then he's going to take that and make it known to us. We're taken into God's confidence, taken into the uh, inner sanctum, you might say. It's like peeping through the circle and seeing the living God uh, as we read these chapters. Jesus goes on a little later in chapter 17, verse 21, and he says this, May those who believe also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. It just blows my mind as I read these passages from John and the glory that's there and that God wants to share that glory, that love, that relationship with us. We're drawn into the Godhead. And, And notice here the goals are unity and mission. Look again at verse 23, so that we might be brought to complete unity and then the world will know that you sent me. And so this is a picture of the church reflecting the loving and missional life of God. And sadly, too often we think of the church as just like a club. You know how clubs work? They just gather people who are like-minded, have a common interest. So people who like playing cards get together and play cards. People who like football get together and play football. People who like craft get together, they do craft. And so people who like Jesus, we just get together to talk about Jesus. Well... That's not the church, actually. No, we're not just a club of individuals who happen to have a common interest. We are supposed to be the embodying the life of God, to make it real for people here on earth. We are to be the practical expression of the trinity of this community of love. One of the things I love about the church is when I see it taking place, when I see the church caring For the last and the least, Uh, the person who's struggling, Uh, being there for the person who may be a bit quirky or bruised by life or who doesn't always respond in the socially accepted way, Uh, and yet they find a home in the church. And isn't it true that we all struggle from time to time? We all have those periods in life where it's all very confusing, but we're community And we keep loving and supporting one another. And to me, this is a sign of the community life of the Trinity. 
where people are loved. And that's not just gooey love. Sometimes it involves serious nurture and correction. We all need that from time to time. But it's essentially just simply being loved, being there for one another. In the New Testament, uh, this life together could be summed up in what's often referred as the referred to as the one another passages. Have you heard of the one another passages? Jeffrey Kantz has done a, a study of these one another commands in the New Testament, and he's found it occurs actually exactly one hundred times. Uh, one third of these are to do with love. In fact, the most common use of one another is simply the phrase, love one another. And that beautiful little phrase is in John's Gospel, it's in Paul's writings, it's in Peter, it's in John's epistles. In Ephesians, Paul writes, tolerate one another in love. He says in Romans, be devoted to one another in love. So a third have to do with love. One third, he says, have to do with unity. Uh, So in Mark, be at peace with one another. In Romans, Paul says, be of the same mind with one another. In Ephesians, he says, be kind, tender-hearted and forgiving to one another. And the book of James, don't complain against one another. Verses that have to do with unity. And then there's humility. He says 15% of the passages stress humility. So uh, John 13, we all know John 13, wash one another's feet. Galatians 5, serve one another. Ephesians 5, be subject to one another. And 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And then there's other well-known passages. Uh, Thessalonians 5, encourage and build up one another. Hebrews 10, spur one another on to love and good deeds. And James says, pray for one another. You see, the New Testament is not a manual for individual Christianity. The vast majority of it is written to churches, for people gathering together and exhorting them to love one another, inviting them to overcome sin and share in this life of God, this life of love, unity, and humility. And we learn these things together in the community of faith. So this community life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not just for academic theologians up there in their ivory towers to, you know, to ponder in their quiet moments. No, it's about life itself. It's about coming to understand what it means to be a godly person living in community. It's about these deep longings in our human heart and knowing where to find them truly fulfilled. Those longings for selfless, trustworthy, other-centered love shown by others to us and us shown to others. It's about understanding our longing for significant and genuine relationships with others, relationships that lead to authentic community. Sadly, these longings have been corrupted by sin and turn in on themselves. Rather than finding satisfaction primarily in God, people seek this satisfaction from others. And of course, others never quite come through for us, do they? 
Only God can satisfy those deepest longings. Other people cannot fill that God-shaped void, and they're never meant to. When we look to others to provide what in the end only God can provide, our longing becomes selfish desire, and people can become very demanding because those longings are never really satisfied. And isn't that the story of our society today? Uh, People are restless uh, because of this selfish desire which leads to demandingness. We have to find our satisfaction in God and God alone. And then you will have something to give to others. Centre your life in the life of the Trinity and you'll find the grace to fulfil these one another passages, these passages of love, unity and humility. I want to finish uh, with this quote from uh, Jerry Bridges, uh, who says this. He says, The Trinity is the first community and the ideal for all communities. That community alone has not been stained by the selfishness of sin. Therefore, in the diversity of God the Father, Son and Spirit is perfect unity as one God that communicates truthfully, loves unreservedly, lives connectedly, serves humbly, interacts peaceably and serves selflessly. In a word, the Trinity is the ideal community in every way. So may we as a church grow every day, every week, every month, every year into this image of God as Trinity and represent him well in our world and for his glory. Amen.